Well, welcome back in and thanks for downloading the podcast. It's called Bourbon Biscuits and Barn Burners. Chris Kerber, Tim Woodburn, John Hadley with you. And I think, John, before we even get going, now tonight, today on the broadcast or, or podcast, however you want to call it, uh, we, we got plenty of blues to talk to. And from a National Hockey League standpoint, we've got COVID situations with the Washington Capitals, home ice situations with Dallas and San Jose, some Chicago. We've got, I want to talk Mark Stone, the trade deadline, and what happened with Keith Yandel down in Florida. So that's on the NHL side. But like we said, this podcast not only has some stories, takes you out of the realm. We talk a little bourbon, whiskey, or scotch, or just spirits in general. But uh, more importantly, too, we also get to your St. Louis Blues as this is a uh, a Blues-focused, uh, NHL-centric kind of uh, podcast here. John, before we get going, in the last podcast, when we were doing it after the Blues lost 8 to nothing to the Colorado Avalanche, you said that uh, the highlight of your night after that game was getting turned on to the TV show on Hulu called, uh, called Letter Kenny. Um, which is, by the way, I, I watched three episodes, and after watching three episodes of it, I think we now should have this podcast. When I introduce you, it should be Chris Kerber, Tim Woodburn, and Squirrely Dan. Oh, Dan. That's all I'm saying. It's a phenomenal TV show. You know what? I'm very happy for the Canadians because they can't win a Stanley Cup, but they have fine-tuned the art of comedic TV series. Oh my goodness! Okay, so if you haven't checked out Letter Kenny, uh, definitely, definitely check it out. And and I would we mentioned this. I, I don't think we were recording yet last time when we did this, but I I don't know where you guys are at on this. I I, I see the humor in it. I get it. I'm just not all locked in and gung ho about the, uh, the the Shits Creek series. Like it's okay. But but to me that that has them a good for for me like the the most recent series that I got into from a comedy standpoint is Ted Lasso which I think has been fantastic. Well, I will tell you this much I I truly and firmly believe that Ted Lasso is one of the five best comedies to come out in the last ten years. It is an absolutely phenomenally well, well written. The actors are just it's almost the kind of thing that. You can't imagine someone else playing the various roles. So casting was perfect. It's a feel-good story. I mean, it's everything that you could want is wrapped up in a nice little bow and tagged with the name Ted Lasso. It's a great, great comedy series. When it comes to Shit's Creek, I mean, I, I, I just I I have to admit being biased because I'm a big Eugene Levy guy. I like some of the dry comedy, but. Frankly, I think Letter Kenny's better, and I think both are Canadian comedies. Tim, have you seen either of them? I haven't seen either one. I think you guys have way too much time on your hands. I sit around and watch hockey all night. <laughs> okay, well, well so, at this so, point, so, sit down and watch some of the Letter Kenny because the opening graphic is fantastic. When it says there's five thousand people in Letter Kenny, these are their problems. <laughs> that, so, yeah. It's, it's, as soon as you see that, you know what's you know what's coming. Oh, it's phenomenal. Yeah. It's not. It's not. These are their stories. It's these are their problems. <laughs> it was. It was actually. It was actually pretty good. All right, let's get into it. Uh, last time we talked and had a podcast for everybody, the Blues had just been thumped by the Colorado Avalanche. We get through the first couple games of the homestand as uh, they faced off against the San Jose Sharks. They split it. So. 
Essentially, the Blues have picked up points now in three of their first four games. That's a good thing. But uh, from a couple of different aspects, Tim, you start us off. Uh, where, where do you want to head with this? Well, from a St. Louis Blues standpoint, you know, th- this is a team that has not scored a power play goal all year, and yet they've posted five out of a possible eight points, and they're actually tied for seventh in the NHL in total points. I wonder how many times in Blues history they have gone four games without scoring a power play goal and have gotten five out of eight points. You know, I, I, I think the San Jose Sharks are still peppering Jordan Bennington with shots down at Enterprise Center as we record this the day after last night's game because the whole third period last night, I'm sitting there thinking, God, I hope we get a point out of this. I hope we at least get a point out of this. I just want a point out of this. They got so dominated last night, and, and Bennington stole the show, and he, he's been their MVP through the first four games after I was wondering how he would start after uh, the bubble playoff last year. Well, part of that comes down to, Tim, I mean, I, it, it's it's some of the consistency. You're relying a lot now on, on a couple of new guys like Krug and Hoffman, and, uh, and you're trying to figure out what they are, what they aren't, and how things are going to fit together. Well, what Krug and Hoffman are and aren't, at least through four games, you know, Eric Carlson's in a role by himself. You know, this is a two-time Norris Trophy winner. Uh, the way he rushes the puck up the ice. I, I guess I expected more creativity and rushing from Tory Krug like Vince Dunn has shown splashes of during his career. I just haven't really seen that from him, and, and I thought uh, we might see a little bit more explosiveness from him in, in rushing up ice. And as far as Mike Hoffman goes, you know, he has one goal. It was a tip in. He's, he's only had five shots in three games. If you watch all the goals, go to YouTube and watch all the goals he scored for the Florida Panthers last year. Very few were on the rush. Almost all of them were one-timers or wrist shots on set plays or, or he crashed the net and banged in a rebound. Uh, very few goals did Mike Hoffman score on the rush. He's not a guy that's going to create a lot with the puck. He's going to have to be fed by guys who are creative like the Kyries and the Thomases and the O'Reillys of the world. Well, all right, John, the, the, the one challenge that the Blues have, though, is they've had to play off the rush because some of their key players, like a David Perron, um, they just haven't been able to hold on to the puck and create some of those offensive chances from down low, which is a big part of their game. Yeah, it's, it's watching this team right now, um, it, it, with a discerning eye, you can see that there are certain elements that you know will be there in time. So... I, I think Tim made a terrific point in regards to special teams because I'll double up. How many times have the Blues not scored a power play goal and given up 117 power play goals in four games, pick up five points? So it, it's it, it, their their inability to be crisp is, is something that will concern me 10, 12 games into the season. But in in, in noting what you've said. You take away basically maybe three periods of hockey through the first four games, and and for the most part, this team has held, held its own. And I, and I just again, maybe it's the fandom in me that's the overriding factor. But while you make a very very valid point, and not, not only not controlling the puck, but seemingly being confused at times, and I think in particular in their own end, holding the puck a little bit too much. Um, It can be fun. Watching this team right now is a little frustrating, but the encouraging thing is the bodies are there. I mean, guys like Steve Thomas aren't standing out. You know they will in time. You know Perron. I mean, Perron's become a different player his last trip around. He's going to be... Things will start clicking. I think Krug will start impressing 
uh, Tim with his, his ability to carry the puck, uh, you know, a little bit more. Even, I mean, even, even O'Reilly really hasn't been O'Reilly if you want to go start to finish through four games up to this point. I mean, you, you can, you can, you know, you can point to guys like Sunquist and, and Shin and Cairo and Falk. And there's a handful of guys who have been themselves, but for the most part, in total, and I'm rambling, but I think you make a very valid point, which is just that more encouraging. They're not crisp. Their special teams have been horrid, absolutely horrid. And yet this team has five points in four games. So when this team does start clicking with the way that Bennington proving to be the man, as I felt all along, you know, I, I'm frustrated with, uh, with, with what I've seen from the Blues in many aspects, but I'm also very encouraged long-term if that makes any sense to either one of you. To me, the, the, one of the questions with this team is when do they turn it on? And we saw – now, don't forget, this is a core of a team that started that 2018-2019 season in horrific fashion, right? This is a core of the team that uh, got off to a decent start in the 1920 season – Right and but but still had to finally kind of fire it up and 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 make their way and then they they challenged for the top of the uh, of the division and won the division with the shortened season. Here it is, the beginning of the year. We we saw them unable to really fire up the engines in the bubble, and right now is when you need them to fire things up. Like they need to ramp up the intensity. They need to kind of pick up some of the intensity off their coach. And we'll talk about Craig Berube in uh, his press conference yesterday in just a minute, but. To me, I'm I'm almost not concerned, but I've got one eyebrow raised in curiosity at the moment in terms of, okay, what's the urgency that you're putting into things, into being ready for these games and ready to go? You had two difficult opponents to begin this, but as you've seen, this West Division is going to be a challenge all the way through, and they have managed, despite the horrendous special teams, like you said, to have picked up points in three of the first four games of the year. So what it tells you is, okay, they're not in a desperate situation, but they have a lot to improve on. And when they do, then things uh, are going to really look good and be scary in this West Division for everybody else. But this is a veteran team that just doesn't seem ready yet or wanting to yet to really fire on all engines. And I guess guess that's a natural follow-up to what I said you know, last time around, I mean, I think in, in, in not uh, certainly in a much tighter, more succinct and logical approach, you said exactly what I said. Because I'll tell you this, coming into the season, first four games of the year, just looking at it on the Blues schedule, I'm thinking, all right, well, four points would be worst case scenario. Five points, ah, it's acceptable. Six points would be great. Or they're sitting at five. You know, I mean, that's 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 what makes literally that's what makes analysis so difficult when you have such a small window to judge. But ironically, with the way that they have played, they've provided a legitimate opportunity for analysis in a negative, which I think equates into a positive way again. I mean, how they've picked up five points with, you know, with with the way that the special teams have played uh, and not being crisp is, it, it tells you the talent level is there because I guarantee you, Ryan O'Reilly, and I'm starting at the top and working down. Ryan O'Reilly has not played his his uh, uh, his best 240 plus minutes of hockey 
I can guarantee you that. None, much. None, hey, John, about a couple of guys. Tim, none of the best players have. Like, if you're going to really right. be, if you're going to be real well, honest about this, none right. of your top players, except for Jordan Bennington, and I, and you know what? And in all fairness, I think we throw Justin Falk in there too. Except for Bennington I, and Falk, I don't know that you could say that any of your top players have. No, and that's, well, one, of the, they, that's one of the guys that I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tim. I was just going to say one of the top players on the ice last night, in fact, the most exciting player on the ice last night was Jordan Kyrou. And even though they only scored one goal in the game, a goal that he set up, I might add, on the rush, it, it was to the point where, even though he got dominated in the third period, every time he touched the puck, I, I, I sort of had a, a heartbeat race up, like, like something exciting was about to happen. I mean, literally, every time he touched the puck. And uh, you can it, it's fun to see guys grow and gain confidence from a from a rookie to a second-year guy, and then as they move forward and upward and onward. I'll tell you what, I can't imagine anybody's confidence on this team right now is any higher than Jordan Kyrie's the way he played the first four games, and especially the exciting and, and borderline dominant player that he was, at least for the first two periods last night. Yeah, and those are, those are the three guys that I had wanted to talk about because, you know, again, going to the what is and what, what will be, I don't think we've seen the best of Robert Thomas. I think we will. But we've seen Jordan Cairo come out and made, make a huge statement. I mean, I, I think that basically when it comes to, to the forwards, you could de- definitively state that Cairo has been the best. I think you could make a case that Sunquist has been the second best. And I would slightly disagree with you, Curbs. I think Shen has been pretty good. Those three guys, you know, among the forwards, uh, has, have stood out to me. But the one guy in particular I wanted to talk about, because again, you know how I felt, Curbs. I thought I said coming into the season, I, I thought that people were going to see a different side because I had seen so much of him that last year was an aberration. I think Justin Falk has been borderline terrific, to be honest with you, four, four games into the season. Not, not borderline. Every of the game. He hasn't been borderline terrific. He has been terrific. Uh, but I don't think this should surprise us. I, we, we talked. We spent a lot of time talking about this guy last season. You come in and. and I mean, you could you sometimes had two or three different partners in the same game, and you were on the left side and the right side. It, it's done wonders for him to come into this situation, just know what his role is going to be, and he has been really, really good. I mean, in that first game against San Jose, to have eight shots on goal, eleven total attempts, and that point he was leading the team then with ten shots on goal going into the second game against San Jose. And J- Justin Falk was delivering, and and you know what, Marco Scandella was playing playing pretty solid alongside of him. Now he had to be a late scratch with an upper body injury, um, and his day to day right now. But but th- those two pair that those guys were kind of starting to 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 slide into that uh, that reliable pairing that Craig Berube needs as part of his group. You know, one of the big question marks I have defensively with with this guys is I just I just don't know. Where Vince Dunn fits, I, I I agree. I don't know where Vince Dunn. Fit. I you feel like there's more to come from him, but I don't know if he's going to get the ice time or those situations there. But again, as you know, as we we were mentioning, I mean, you've got a guy that you you had two you had two defensemen in the penalty box in Gunnarsson and Pareko, albeit Gunnarsson for just eleven seconds in that game last night. You had Tori Krug that needed help walking down the the runway. And you're sitting in a situation now where Vince Dunn, throughout the entire game, despite San Jose having nine and a half minutes of power play time, was only on the ice for about seven seconds of it. And that's not an exaggeration. That's an actual number. 
No, I, again, I, I, when it comes to Dunn and Stanford, I respect them as players. They're both legit NHL players, but I think in St. Louis, we, the expectations for those two players are so significantly higher than they should be that, you know, it, it's, like I said, I wasn't so much concerned about the loss of Petrangelo vis-a-vis if Falk played his game and Krug played up to his ability and Pareko took the next step, we're covered. On the back end, I've always been concerned. I've always been concerned that Dunn has been a little bit more overrated. And as we've seen once again, you know, I mean, our boy gets a, gets a couple games on the top lines, on the ice for more than a half hour, and invisible. Stanford's been invisible for two games. Well, the, the cream of this conversation is the fact that despite getting dominated last night, the Blues got a point in the game. I, I enjoy watching Craig Bruby uh, speak after the game. Uh, last night might have been the most aggravated I've ever seen him in a post-game press conference. You know, he's usually pretty cool, calm, and collected. I mean, you can go back to the hand pass game against the Sharks in the playoffs two years ago, you know, and he was, you know, he was he was an even-keeled guy. He's even-keeled when they win. He's even-keeled when they lose. Last night, he was borderline rude to the reporters, and, and you know, he has every right to, but, you know, he just saw his team get dominated in the third period. We, we misfire on every shot in the shootout. Probably nothing aggravates a coach worse than that, and then they have to go right in the face of the media afterward, but he was uh, – he was very unberubi-like, in my opinion, during the press conference last night. He was—I've never seen him quite that aggravated and PO'd. Okay, so I'm well, going to take that's, this. That's his problem. That's his team. I don't think—I don't think he's justified in being rude to the media, asking questions about what was uh, a, an absolutely ridiculous third period. I mean, I—I I don't know what the numbers were. But uh, you you couldn't you you couldn't fill one hand with a number of legit shots that the Blues had in the third period in overtime. Tenham's agents seemingly was shooting at will with open lane. Now I, it, uh, Barubis has been mad at himself and his staff and his team, not the media. Okay, well that, that was a that was as pathetic a third period as we'll ever see that team play. So if you go back and uh, several things here, it's it, it's an interesting take. Because I don't disagree with you, but from time to time, Craig has Craig has done this. And I just, honestly, I just think it's who he is. And I can tell you, it's not him being a Bill Belichick jerk, right? Or, or one of those kind of things. I think Craig takes questions from the media every single day. He answers them. A lot of times he gives you, gives you great quotes after a game like that. You were just dealing with one frustrated, absolutely frustrated coach. Here I, I I compiled a little bit. I actually I compiled those answers and, and here are the answers kind of back to back to back. Take a listen to this. Yeah, PK killed off seven penalties. I mean two five on threes. It's ridiculous the penalties, but um, you know, we we can't go to the box that much. It's it's really hard on people. It's hard on our team. Can't get to our game because of it. Um, I don't know where we're at in the league right now, penalty wise. Might be leading the league. Well, it's not a smart play. You gotta wait till the guy gets to the box. That's it. They're penalties. That's why they call them. We got a lot of guys that aren't skating and not competing hard enough. Keep on them. Talk to them. Show them. That's it. All right. All right. So when you when you get get questions like Craig Berube got, and the question is, okay, what about um, 
you know, the special teams. And he says, we're just taking too many penalties. It's four games in. We, we could be leading the league in penalties. And he gets asked a question, you know, uh, you know, well, is it just a, a you know, the bad, the situation on David Perron taking the too many men on the ice penalty? And he just goes, it's a bad play. You got to wait for the guy to get from the box. It's a bad play. When it, when he was asked about the penalties, he goes, they, they're penalties because they were, they were called because they were penalties. You know, there, there's just no excuses. Like, this guy does not give his teams one inch of excuse for any potential thing other than their own responsibility to make things happen. Go back to the hand pass game against San Jose, which people talk about ad nauseum. He goes, don't worry about it. You can't control that part. And he, I mean, he has hung that. He didn't hang, he doesn't hang anything on the referees. He doesn't hang anything on on you know anything but the players' effort and special teams, and uh, that was one frustrated coach last night. But I'm I'm telling you, if you're a player playing for Craig Berube, you know exactly where you stand. I, I don't. I didn't have. A, I didn't have a problem with it. I wouldn't have wanted to have been the next person to talk to him when he walked out of the room. Let's just say that <laughs> whether you're a team employee or a player or another coach or a fan or a kid asking for a lot, I wouldn't have wanted to be the first person to speak with him as soon as he walked out that door because he stormed out. Yeah, and I'm surprised, they, he, even the door, I'm surprised he even opened the door with the door handle. I'm surprised he didn't just walk right through it. Well, and, and, he might have. And, and he just might have. And, and and he should be because again, I, I don't want to. I don't want to sugarcoat this. I mean, uh, when I'm sitting here saying that it's amazing to me that this team has five points in four games, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. It really is. I mean, they're, they, they were dominated, absolutely dominated in one of the games in Colorado. For the most part, San Jose was as good, if not the better team in the game as the Blues won. And last night, not only did San Jose come out and prove to be the better team again for 60 minutes, but on the Blues' home ice, they were borderline non-competitive in the deciding stanza of a hockey game and picked up a point merely because of the fact that they have one of the best goalkeepers in the NHL. I mean, that's, 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 that, that was 25 minutes of hockey that I can't believe Anyone in that locker room, anyone looking in the mirror, thought was acceptable. That was horrid. And I, that my only regret with that game was that there wasn't 18,000 people in there booing them after the game because that was one of those games that they deserved a large round of booze. Well, and, and the dumbest the dumbest play that I have seen in a long time is by Sharks forward Ryan Donato in the waning seconds of three-on-three overtime but all he has to do is take one foot forward and step outside the goal crease while the Sharks pound the puck into an open net with Bennington off plane with his stick into the corner, caught way out of net. And he stands there deep in the crease, not aware of where he is, and, and the goal was waved off. And if the Blues would have won that game, uh, he would have been a major, major goat of this conversation. No doubt about it. Let, let me play this game for you for the first second. I, if... If you were in that interview room at the end of the game, okay, what's yeah. one question you would ask Craig Berube about that game? Hey, where was your team on uh, for the last twenty five minutes of the game? Would you ask? I, okay, I, okay, I, okay. I, wait, wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay, would you have asked it that way? 
No, no. Okay, no. Well, that's what I'm saying. I want you to no, ask, because- what's a question that you would have asked to Craig Berube after that game? Well, you have to be in the same room with him, John, so you, so you got to temper it. I, no, I would have just come out and, and it, 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 like the old times when you and I lose post-game shows. I would have just said, Craig, your take on the last 25 minutes of the game. Because you, you just know that that alone suffices because he watches from the bench. He watches his own guys basically get it handed to him. I mean, I'm utterly shocked that the Blues managed to get to overtime. I, I, I'm completely serious. I'm utterly shocked. As soon as as soon as soon that buzzer sounded, I went to the fridge to get something to come back, thinking to myself, man, at least we got a point tonight. That's amazing. And I could not be more serious. What about you, Tim? What's, what's the question you would ask? I, I would ask him, considering how good he's had to play at what point do you not play Jordan Bennington? Because he has been the MVP this game these first four games, and you guys are getting pounded with shots. He's having to come up with almost double-digit incredible saves per game to keep you guys in the games that you've been in or that you've even won. Uh, at, at, at what point do you have to say enough's enough? Or I mean, how long can you ride him? Because right now it looks like you need him. Yeah, well, I think we're going to see that this weekend because I think with the back-to-back scenario, we'll see Billy Huso on one of those games. All right, let's let's jump around the National Hockey League here on, on a few things. We saw we we're seeing the COVID challenge in the National Hockey League um, really start to rear its head. And guys, the Washington Capitals get fined a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, Alex Ovechkin comes out on Twitter, apologizes for it. His wife goes on Instagram and and rips the league. Uh, for the protocols about the players not being able to socialize in their rooms. And I'm not sure that she's wrong, to be honest with you, but it is the way it is. Um, but, but Tim, the, the, the COVID situation is going to remain a fragile tightrope for this league and all leagues, for that matter, for the foreseeable future. As it was for the NFL, as it has been for the college football season, as it has been for the college basketball season, and I fully expected at some point to become a factor in the Blues season, whether they have games canceled because other teams have issues or whether the Blues have a breakout of their own. I mean, Carolina is not going to play until next week. Dallas is going to play their first game tomorrow. Washington's having star players suspended and having to call guys up. This is, this is going to be an issue throughout the entire season. My question is, will the NHL be as creative as the NFL, the SEC, in football, uh, all of major league, all of the NCAA college basketball leagues, will they be creative in tinkering with the schedule and rearrange games as a result of this? I'm very curious to see. And really, it, it comes down to like, for example, the San Jose Sharks. You know, I've had to train in Scottsdale. If there's no fans in any, there's only three teams allowing fans in games right now. If there's if there's really no home ice advantage per se. Uh, and the Scottsdale Arena isn't outfitted to be an NHL arena. Why would is it feasible that the Sharks would play all of their games on the road? Because Scottsdale's not at home either. Most of those guys that live there live in San Jose. So, you know, they're going to start the year with eight games on the road. I wonder how many they're going to play on the road. Oh, the, I wonder how many how many teams are going to play a full fifty six game schedule. There, there is a chance. There is a chance that San Jose where San Jose will end up playing their entire home schedule at Gila River Arena in Glendale. Uh, I mean, and that's 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 where they're based out of right now. And that's that's one of the added challenges that they have. 
you know, but but you're right. But this is why this is why it's such a that fragile tightrope that you have to walk. Because the weather's gonna turn, the weather's gonna get warmer. We will have made it through the winter, you know, uh, another uh, a COVID winter, and guys are gonna want to get out. But until until this thing, the worm really turns on this thing, the the fragile nature of day to day situations is very much real, and every single person involved, including us as broadcasters. We have the responsibility to make sure that every single person does their own part to deal with the COVID situations to make sure that nothing happens from an overall team standpoint. Well, I, I, I could tell you this much, boys. From my experience running a local radio station in St. Louis, um, I can understand why he's being upset players. I can, never, I can understand. I get everything. But I know this much right now. For several months, I have not allowed guests to come in the studio. They've all had to be on the phone. When sponsors have to come in, there's a 15-minute window that they have. They walk in. They go right in the studio. They walk out. That studio is cleaned immediately afterwards. And yet, we've had four four different employees come in and find out the next day that they tested positive for COVID. And that night, we've had to have professional cleaning services come in and do it. No matter how much you do to try and control things, we're dealing with the uncontrollable. Correct. You know, so when it when it comes when it comes to sports, even attempting to play, I think it's admirable because it is a diversion that's desperately needed. You know, I'm not one of these guys who live for sports. I love sports, and I will devour an entire plate of hockey on any given evening, an entire plate of football any weekend. But the fact of the matter is, I can live my life without it. I know a lot of people who were depressed not only because of COVID, because they didn't have sports. Sports is back. I have a great respect for guys who are going, coaches, players, personnel, that travel with that team. I have a great respect for what people are attempting to do. But just because you're attempting to do it, doesn't override the fact that you have to do it within a manner which at times is probably overly cautious because knock on wood for nearly a year of having to deal with this now, there has not been one person that has caught COVID at the local radio station that I run having caught it from someone in those studios. And I take great pride with that. Because we've gone overboard with everything. Half the employees work from home. Half the shows are done away from the studio. And that's the only thing you can do. So, you know, when it, when it comes to COVID, I mean, I don't give a second thought to it. Because I fully expect, having dealt with what I have personally dealt with here in St. Louis, I fully expect it to be dogs and cats living together and craziness of somehow, some way, completing a season in a respectable form and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Although I do agree with Curbs, come springtime, in theory, with the vaccinations, warm, warmer weather, yada, 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 people probably wearing more masks than ever before. I, I think we'll start to see the numbers come down. But again, it's not going to go away for a while. So it's just, I just look at it as another factor of life. You got to pay taxes, you got to wake up in the morning, you got to do yada, yada, yada. And you have to deal with COVID. 
looking at it any differently or expecting anything differently, it's just going to lead to an incredible amount of inner frustration. Well, here's one aspect uh, from a National Hockey League standpoint that is going to be a real intriguing one that will have a COVID imprint no matter what. April 12th. April 12th is the trade deadline day in the National Hockey League. Now, we have we just saw Ian Cole get traded to Minnesota from Colorado for Greg Patteron, which, by the way, I mean, even if it was the Central, you're still talking about two divisional teams making a deal, right? Which in and of itself is, is a rare fascination these days and, and great. But because of where they were, they had to figure out, okay, how do I get Ian Cole from L.A., who, where he was with the Avalanche, down to Anaheim? How do we get Patteron from Anaheim up to L.A.? And in the end, because they had approved a bus service and all that, they decided, okay, we're going to put him on a bus and do it that way. Bus take one guy down, the bus then brings the other guy back, and it, and it all kind of worked out that way. But, but, you've seen a team like the Vancouver Canucks, who have their American Hockey League affiliate with Robert Esch and Utica. And now they've got an agreement in Manitoba where the Winnipeg Moose play, the same town as the Winnipeg Jets. And those guys, they're putting their affiliate there because if they have to call somebody up from the American League, then they're only dealing with a seven-day quarantine before the guy could play versus a 14-day quarantine if they were to call the guy up from south of the border. Where that quarantine issue comes and stands come April 12th is going to have an impact on the trade deadline in the National Hockey League because if you're one of those seven Canadian teams and there is somebody, there's a team that's out of it and there's a deal to be made with a team that is on the U.S. side of the border, but you may have to have that guy sit out for two weeks before he can play for you could change your decision depending on the timing of it. Well, the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, has publicly flaunted the idea of the entire league being vaccinated as, as like a, a sort of a public service announcement type thing to encourage everyone to get vaccinated, which could be looked at one of two ways. And we don't have to get into the, the positive and the negative. I think everybody's smart to figure out what the negative of that would be. Why should they get it when those people out there are in more situations need it more? But, you know, from a, from a, league leadership standpoint if this gets out of hand if there's a st louis cardinals of the nhl this year that has to shut down for three weeks how could you possibly expect that team to play 56 games in 85 days versus 56 games in 112 days for uh, just to throw a couple numbers out there in dallas playing their first game tomorrow it could happen to anybody i wonder what pro sports leagues will do with regard to i mean before we discuss the topic of whether fans have to show proof of vaccination to come into sports arenas or however they're going to let fans in down the road if they go down that road a league-wide vaccination i personally wouldn't have a problem with it you know i mean sports build uh builds uh, attitude in fans and it, it encourages people's morale and and in, in in so many ways and there's so many fans of so many teams of so many sports i, I personally wouldn't have a problem from a is somebody butting in front of the line standpoint for all athletes in all sports to get vaccinated as quickly as possible in order for 
I guess, America to begin to heal, for lack of a better phrase. Oh, hell, the jump in the line thing is one of the funniest things out there when a guy like Marco Rubio can get the vaccine, and yet he's been pretty much anti-protocol on the rest of it. You know, I mean, when you look, the the, the bottom line is, is people are going to be in uproar no matter what happens. So if these leagues can get a hold of uh, the vaccine themselves through uh, a private way of doing it, I have no problem if business moves along that way. We'll, We'll see how that goes. Hey, down in Florida, speaking of uh, Rubio, uh, Florida. The new general manager of the Florida Panthers tries to strong-arm Keith Yandel into essentially waiving his no-movement clause. And to do so, he threatens him by not having him play in the season opener with the Florida Panthers, thus threatening his career uh, uh, consecutive game streak as he's knocking on the door to become the all-time leader in that category. I wouldn't say it backfired on the general manager, but I guess you, you you might as well say that it was a really bad idea to take that approach with a veteran player because you want to talk about the ability to lose your room in a hurry. John, you know Joel Quenville well. He, he was here uh, my early days as a broadcaster. If there is, uh, there is probably no better players coach in the National Hockey League than Joel Quenville, one of the greatest coaches of all time from not only a Stanley Cup standpoint, but a win record standpoint. He was put in a really tough spot that he had to dance with here in terms of how do you manage through this and be respectful for the player, but also respect your bosses. And in the end, it came out where Keith Yandel was able to play and and they got that thing going. But that could have been a much worse situation than it needed to be down there. No doubt. And being a a shrewd guy, I thought Q handled it perfectly. If you read the newspapers down there uh, before before the game was... with Yandel playing uh, without throwing his boss under the bus, but having his players back, there was a paragraph where he basically came out and praised both sides, saying that they thought each he thought each side handled it like men, and that everything worked out in the end, and he was very proud of both sides. You know, so a guy like Q knows how to handle that situation. You can't throw your owner under the bus, but you also got to have your players back and. You know, I, I, I think it's fascinating that you wanted to deal with this topic because this is a topic that if you don't have a veteran coach or you don't have a coach who's willing to stand to be accounted for to have his players back, I agree with you 100%. This could have been a dev- devastating situation for a hockey team. Well, because you, you, you would have had a division of epic proportion in certain cases and in particular with who the player was, but Yandel's a veteran who's appreciated and respected in this league, and I'm sure in that room. So I, I thought Q did a great job, uh, Curbs, in the way that he handled that. And, and Yandel is 98 games away from passing Doug Jarvis for the all-time NHL consecutive games record. I, I wouldn't have had so much of a problem. I'm, I would have been like, well, okay, you know, I'm surprised it, it got announced that way, but it was kind of a, a shrewd at least approached by the Florida DM to, to approach him that way if they're having money issues and, and cap issues. But the, when I started looking at Keith Yandel's career history, I didn't realize that he suffered a horrendous facial and mouth injury that, that most players would have been put on either long-term IR or, or certainly on, on short-term IR. And he insisted on getting things wired and put back together and whatnot so that that streak would continue. I mean, the sacrifice he made to keep that streak alive, once I saw that, I'm like, there's no way you can yank it from this guy. Uh, and I don't care what the reason is. It would, and, and you're right, it would have been a horrible way, I don't know about necessarily to lose the room, but it would, it would have been a horrible
horrible PR move for the Panthers. And it's, it's, a, it's a type of move that that GM, um, if he stays in Florida for the rest of his career, that's great. But that's the kind of thing that would I would think would almost maybe get you blackballed by other teams hiring you if you're ever looking for a job one day. Guys, there's plenty <laughs> of examples where you, you have to look. There's been plenty of examples, you know, the, the Mike Keenan sitting a guy in his hometown scenarios, right, when he didn't need to, things like that where there are just some things that transcend the game. And with, with San Jose having just been in town and Patrick Marlowe, you know, could, if he stays healthy, set the all-time games played mark this season. I, I just look at it, and there are just some things that, that go for the, the Florida Panthers are not going to challenge for a Stanley Cup this season unless they get extraordinarily lucky. They're not. You've got a veteran guy that is well-liked by his teammates where he has been. You've got a guy that can help lead the culture of a turnaround that you need. You've got a guy that can relate to a Joel Quenville the, the way that and then get his message through to the younger guys. And that's the guy you decide as the general manager to kind of pick a to, to pick a fight with. Now look, that, that that's why Doug Armstrong's approach of not giving out just blanket no movement clauses is a good one. And I'm okay that if a player does not re-sign with the St. Louis Blues or does not come here as a free agent because Doug Armstrong won't give him a no movement clause. I like Doug's approach and answer when he said I don't think a player should have more power than the owner. Of, of the team you know now he's got there are clause no movement they've, they've given some no movement clauses in terms of you can pick a certain number of teams or you can tell us what teams that kind of thing but it just hasn't been a blanket no movement one and John we were around when you know Doug uh, Larry Plo decided okay he traded Doug Waite the first time to Carolina Dougie goes down there wins the Stanley Cup they re-signed Doug Waite he comes in here Anaheim ends up in uh, in some cap issues, they got to dump a player, and they're able to actually get a hold of Andy McDonald for Doug Waite. Doug Doug turned down the trade. He had a no-trade clause. Larry Plough said, well, you can turn the trade down, but then we're not going to play. We're going to put you in the press box. And and that's essentially what we saw happen in Florida. But the teams, I think, were in a different spot. There was nothing like a game streak on the line. I just, you know, some so, sometimes you've got to, you've, you've got to actually put on a human hat if you are in management and try to understand something, and the power of the position doesn't necessarily cut it. You, you've got to actually understand what goes on in the room and how to before you can make those kind of moves. You know. And going back to what John said about the trade deadline, you know, are teams allowed to make trades between divisions? I mean, you don't have, since you're only playing within your division, I assume I assume there'll be no Canadian American trades with the quarantine issues being what they are. But John, you know. Trading within your division, I mean, if, you, if you're if you're dumping, do you, do you help a team out in your own division? I mean, is that is that violating some type of unwritten protocol? Not if, it, not if those good players are coming to the Blues, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, the, the, the trade deadline part is, is, is going to be fascinating. I think, I think what you could see as a result of it is you could see potential trades made sooner. You could see potential deals made sooner. I, I mean, and again... This is assuming that two and a half months from now, uh, three months from now, that you've actually got uh, you actually you actually have still the, the quarantine issues going around. All right, uh, John, you, you wanted to hit on the Chicago Blackhawks. Yeah, yeah. One of two things, real quick. I, I'll tell you what, guys. I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, Curbs. I never thought I would see the Detroit Red Wings in a position that we've seen them now for the last couple of years. And even three years ago, 
I never foresaw what I'm witnessing this year with the Chicago Blackhawks. This is this is this is, this team is as bad as I've seen in a long time pre Quinville years in Chicago. I mean, this is a horrid Chicago hockey team. I mean, this, this seriously, this might be the worst hockey team in the NHL because if nothing else, Ottawa fans, Anaheim fans, Kings fans all have a very bright future because there's some incredible young talent coming through those teams. The Blackhawks, I'm telling you right now, I, I, I have a very distinct feeling that in the end, the Blackhawks, the Blackhawks are going to be the worst team in the NHL. I think their future is in question. And it will be the second second time that a franchise has made the mistake of blaming their own decisions on a guy by the name of Joe Quinville, getting rid of Quinville and keeping the same thing up top. Chicago, the Blues made a huge mistake in, in, in getting rid of Quinville. And I think the Blackhawks made a huge mistake in getting rid of Quinville. And the Blackhawks, I'm telling you, Curb, I had no idea how bad this hockey team was going to be until I saw it. And as much as I believe that the Blues have the potential to be even better than what I thought, despite a crappy start, Chicago is not going to surprise me. Chicago is a horrid, horrid franchise that has basically imploded themselves with some of the decisions they've made, not only from the standpoint of, of, of talent, uh, but on that bench as well. Does Jonathan well, Taves finish the eight. year? Yeah. If, he can yeah, come, like- if he can come back is what I'm saying. Well, it'd be like the Blues losing O'Reilly. If, if O'Reilly, you know, the morale in that locker room had to had to just plummet when they realized that their captain and their leader and three time Stanley Cup winner uh, was long term going to be out and maybe not play at all. I mean, right. imagine what would happen if Ryan O'Reilly had made that announcement in January uh, for the Blues. What would their locker room would be like? What would their team be like? I mean, I think it would be very different. Yeah, and you I guys can say what you want. If you come on create crappy hockey. For 240 minutes because you're all upset that some guy's not in the locker room. Well, don't cash your check on Friday. No, no, John, I agree with it. They, they are not a very, they're not a good hockey team right now. The, the, the loss of Taves hurts them greatly. I don't know that having Taves was going to help them greatly in this case. Now, what the way it would have helped them is I said it in my mind that for them to complete this turnaround that they're going to try to compete, complete. Uh, it does not happen with both Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves staying with the Chicago Blackhawks. One of those no. two, if not both, get dealt. No, and that is just, and, you, and 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 in theory, if you do your job and you do it right, between picks and players, if you wind up dealing both those guys, you're going to hasten the turnaround significantly because there's a real good chance you get the first round pick or the first pick in the draft this year. But I don't want to prolong the conversation. I want to get to one more thing because I'm almost embarrassed that I was not aware of just how good a player Mark Stone was. I mean, I watched him play in Ottawa and he caught my eye, but it wasn't until he came to the West and I started paying attention. I mean, I love watching Mark Stone play hockey. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? As you know, I've spent years not only doing statistical work for TV networks, but for teams, I always like to have my eyes tell me a story that I try to justify. So I go to the numbers. Mark Stone 
in his last 69 games played is a plus 21 with 70 points. In his last 27 playoff games, he's a plus player with 29 points. Mark Stone should be considered truly one of the elite players in the NHL. And you tell me the last time that you've had a conversation about elite players and Mark Stone's name was mentioned. I think Mark Stone is the single most underrated top drawer athlete in all of sports right now. And that's just my opinion. I could be wrong. I think you would have the national, you would, you would hear more people on a national level talking about Mark Stone, non-hockey, like, like non-NHL network types. Um, if he was on the East Coast, the challenge was he, he was in Ottawa and then he's out, out there in Las Vegas now. But Vegas knew what they did. They, they traded him. They immediately signed into a long-term contract and said, here's a, here's the C as well. So go to work. I mean, they, they he, he is a fantastic player, but it, but even so, man, he, you know, we're talking about the management of the Chicago Blackhawks. Even so, I think at some point Vegas is going to be in a fragile situation with how they have to manage their cap coming up. And the fact that they had just about everybody's name on the trading block uh, with the Alex Petrangelo deal created a unique situation there, too. That 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 will become an interesting one to watch. But they've, they've, they definitely have a good one and a great one in Mark Stone. And, and a point to bring up with the trading deadline is the fact that teams are going to have to expose somebody good for the Seattle Kraken uh, right. this summer. And, and you know, as I crunch numbers right now, if the Blues don't make any deals, you know, my two leading candidates of a player they'll have to expose are Vince Dunn and Ivan Barbashev, and, and I wouldn't want to lose either one of those two guys. Um, you know, and, and teams ditching guys so they don't have to expose them so they can get something back for them. Uh, the teams that aren't going to make the playoffs, and, 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 and that's going to be something I'm going to keep my eye on the most. Is, is those is, is, the, is the teams who are downtrodden knowing something somebody well you know and what I'm going to do my best my very best to show you and these players respect but I am going to do my very best to try and convince you to give up title sponsorship as president of the Sanford and Dunn fan club <laughs> Hey, well, I think I've already put myself out on the on the cutting board. I'm the president of the Jordan Cairo fan club. He was making my heart beat faster last night, which is uh, dangerous for a big guy like me. He's got to slow down, or I'm not going to make it. All right, so here's here's our here's the bourbon tip of the week for everybody. All right, as we as we wrap this, we got we got a barn burner. I got a story about a sandwich that relates to Little House on the Prairie for tonight's barn burner. All right, for today's barn burner or this week's barn burner, whatever we call it, whenever we're recording the podcast. All right, but. Okay, my wife has started, she kept trying whiskeys, bourbons, things as I was drinking them, and she's like, oh, man, this is awful. This is awful. But, you know, kind of like a kid with vegetables, you know, she, she kept was willing to try different ones and see what, well, once she kind of piqued her interest on was, was Woodford Reserve, right, which, Tim, I know you enjoy a lot, right? Right, yep. So what she did, and this is helped to me, she started mixing a drink called The Godfather. Okay, where it's basically, and and she likes to make it. She's made it with different ones, but her favorite one is 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 with Woodford, and especially the double oaked. But but just Woodford. So if you got somebody that's not into it yet, and you want to soften the transition before they start drinking it neat or drinking it on the rocks or drinking it straight, take some Woodford. You put in a little amaretto. You just mix the two together, and you've got yourself a Godfather, and it's a fantastic drink. That's how you start to kick down the door. Very nice. Yep. 
take a little bit of Woodford, put Woodford in there. I'd say uh, two to one. So if you put if you put two or three ounces of Woodford in there, put uh, one ounce of amaretto, and uh, and you got yourself a great drink. And it's just it's literally that simple, but it's good. And that's what that has what has opened the bourbon door for my wife, who at one point just said, "I can't drink this stuff." So that's a uh, there, there's your bourbon tip of the week. All like right, it. go ahead. Oh, I thought you want me to tell my barn burner too. Oh no 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 no! I'm I gotta sh- I'm gonna share this one with you this week. All right. Okay. There was a there was a player a first round draft pick for the Phoenix Coyotes. Now, as, as you know, when you're riding the bus around the the minor leagues, those bus drivers know every different restaurant and place to stop. So. Springfield was on a road trip. They were driving up to Fredericton. It's about a nine-hour drive, and three hours into the trip, three and a half hours into the trip, you hit Portland, Maine, and then you got to go another six up through Bangor and, and and through the wilderness to get into the Maritimes in Canada. All right, so everybody's kind of hungry, and the bus the, the bus driver says, "You know, we're going to stop. We're going to stop at a place, uh, Melissa Gilbert's Chart House." So yeah, the same the, Melissa Gilbert from Little House on the Prairie fame owned a little restaurant. And here comes this bus of a whole bunch of hockey guys that pull up to it in Portland, Maine. And they're sitting down at the four tops in there, and everyone's sitting, and I'm sitting with the, uh, with, uh, the coach. I'm actually sitting with the bus driver. And this player comes back from, his, uh, from the table, or from going to the bathroom, after he'd ordered his food, and the food gets delivered. And the first thing he does is he looks at the guys at his table and says, Hey, fellas, where's the rest of my sandwich? And the guy's like, what do you mean? You got your order right there. No, fellas, don't, don't mess around with me. Where's the rest of my sandwich? And they're like, dude, you, your sandwich is in front of you. What you ordered is in front of you. And he's getting ready to flip the table. Now he's he's about to lose it. So I leaned back and I said, hey, what's the problem? What's, what's going on here? He goes, we got another six hours on this trip. I want to know where the rest of my food is. I said, what'd you order? He goes, the special. I said, which special? He says, the half sandwich and a cup of soup. It said half ham and cheese and cup of soup. I said, well, in front of you, you have a half ham and cheese and a cup of soup. What's the problem? There's a reason that this first-round draft pick of the Phoenix Coyotes did not make it very far. As nice of a guy as he was. He thought that literally half the sandwich was ham, half the sandwich was cheese. You'd put it together and you'd have yourself a whole sandwich. Okay? So, so the funniest... I mean, and you're sitting there going, did this really just happen? And then it just happened. So we get back on the bus. There's a trainer. He's still around helping with the games in Springfield. His name is Ralph Calvin. He's one of my favorite people I've ever worked with and met in this business. Ralphie has been around the game since Eddie Shore, and I'm not making this up, was still mingling around the rink in Springfield. Okay, he just He's worked over 3,000 minor league games. Over 3,000 minor league games. Okay. As as an equipment manager, Ralphie had been on enough bus trips. He he sat with his feet in the aisle. The player was sitting across the aisle in two seats back, and for the next hour and a half, because Ralphie had nothing else to do, he leaned in the aisle. He tilted his head and he stared at the guy, just shaking his head like he couldn't believe what had happened. This guy was so he was so rattled, like he's ready to beat up Ralphie and anybody that looked at him. But Ralphie just egged him on for an hour and a half on the bus ride, just staring at him, shaking his head after that fiasco. So that's a uh, there's there's your barn burner of the week: uh, half ham and cheese and a cup of soup at Melissa Gilbert's. Almost created a hockey fight. It almost makes you wonder how his parents prepared his food 
throughout his life. Oh, man. I, Terrific, I ter- time, terrifically nice guy, but wow, what a moment. I remember one time we were at a, a Denny's uh, when I was with Rowan Open the East Coast Hockey League, and we had three Russian players in the team. They all played in the same line, didn't speak English. And they all got up at the same time to go to the bathroom to wash their hands. They were all clean freaks about their you know, touching their food and stuff. And their burgers came, and the players doused their burgers with every ounce of hot sauce that we could scramble that they could scramble to find, and and just douse these burgers and hot sauce, and then put them back. And then these guys come back, and their food is sitting there waiting for me. And everybody just looked at them and watched them, and the and the players didn't want to act that they were wussies or couldn't handle the American food. And one guy actually had tears coming out of his eyes <laughs> as, he, as they sat there and ate their sandwiches in silence and didn't complain about it. <laughs> Gee. You know what? You go back a number of years. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the broadcast booth. I'm working with the Blues. I brought in a Subway sandwich for dinner. All right. And I, I've got it kind of on the table in front of me, uh, just kind of there. Where I'm just looking out at the rink while I'm about to eat it. And I, I, I got to go get it. Um, uh, just go get a cup of water. So I leave the booth and I go down there. While I'm gone, apparently Chaser takes a napkin. I didn't know about it, and he laid it. He, he put it in the sandwich, like literally put this napkin across it in the sandwich. I <laughs> tore through that sandwich, ate the whole thing. Now he had left. He like we didn't end up in the booth at the same time. For me. I came back. He came back. He goes. He goes. Hey, how's your sandwich? I go. I ate it. He goes. You did what? He goes, he goes, you weren't saving that? I go, no, I ate it. I go, why? And he goes, oh, no. <laughs> he goes, I put a whole napkin in there. You didn't even know it. You just ate the whole napkin. <laughs> I I have never left a sandwich around that guy again because I don't need the fiber. No doubt. So I just have to know before we conclude, I just have to know, at least, Tell me the captain. Tell me somebody on that hockey team. Explain to the coach or the general manager. Hey, guys, we have an issue with the half ham and cheese thing. This is not a good sign. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, unfortunately, like the Arizona Coyotes, well, the, they were the Phoenix Coyotes at the time. They did not, they didn't draft well, and they really didn't care much about developing guys. And, uh, you know, so so they took this guy with a high pick in the first round and, and um, Dave Farish was our head coach. I mean, eventually Dave Farish went into Bruce Lannon and said, I can't coach this guy. No one can coach this guy. And you know, Bruce said, problem, Dave, that's your job. So go find a way to coach him. You know, but he, he was. He just, it, the hockey smarts wasn't there. The physicality was there. The, I mean, he was a, such a terrific, terrific guy. Nice guy. But uh, but the hockey smarts weren't there, and he just it just never came about. There's a good number of players that uh, that went to die in the Coyotes organization those uh, those early days of them having uh, moved down from Winnipeg. They just didn't care a whole lot about the development of their players, you know. You know, for a while, Re- really. I mean, it was Danny Breer was over a course of about four years was the guy that had the biggest impact uh, of anything, you know. And it was so really just one or two guys. It was it was. It was kind of a shame, but yet, yeah, no, uh, we knew that we were in for it at that point in time when uh, when you had to explain the sandwich sign. It was. Uh, I, I remember I remember being in Springfield getting ready to play the Falcons when you were with the team. You guys were on the road, and the game was on uh, the, the Daniel Breer's NHL debut was on TV, and I remember sitting in a, in a bar uh, with his wife and some of her friends, and she was crying tears watching him step on the ice for the first game of right. his career. Yep, yep. Great guy. Uh, you know, the beautiful thing is that we're in the Kings division this year, 
and not two years from now. So I'm looking forward to four points because two years from now, going to L.A. is not going to be fun. No, they got some good young prospects coming up, so uh, it'll be good. Fellas, good stuff this week. Uh, let, let's We'll do it again next week with uh, bourbon, biscuits, and barn burners. Beautiful. Have a great week. Have a great weekend. All right, we will uh, check in with everybody else. A new podcast drop next week. Thanks for downloading on all the different podcast formats, uh, bourbon, biscuits, and barn burners, and we will talk to everybody next week. All right, fantastic, boys. We'll get this out there. Tim, I'll send you a link.